Welcome to Prince Track by Track presents Steve Wonder Classics. Today we're going to be talking about Loves in Need of Love Today, the opening song from the double album epic Songs in the Key of Life, uh, released on the 28th of September 1976. Uh, on the track there is Stevie Wonder and there is Eddie Bongos Brown, which I feel is kind of limiting uh, his professional career. Uh, although ironically on this track he's not playing any bongos, he's actually playing the kalimba. Oh, um, so, different <laughs> you thing. Know, uh, yeah, he had, I guess, calling him, naming him after whatever instrument he's playing for each album was a bit cumbersome. <laughs> um, also on this, uh, Stevie Wonder debuts his use of the Yamaha GX1, which is something we will have to talk about. Mm-hmm. Uh, the track is 7 minutes 6, and joining me to talk about today is Sarah Ifdecker. Hello, Sarah. Hello, thanks for having me. Yeah, so obviously, you know, Songs in the Key of Life, won a ton of Grammys, mm-hmm. um, you know, it is kind of one of the landmark Stevie Wonder albums. I feel like if anybody kind of needs to name an album by Stevie Wonder, this is probably the album that they will name first, mostly because the album before this is called Fulfilling This First Finale, and that's (laughs) a little bit hard to say. Um, Whereas Songs in the Key of Life is kind of, you know, um, about as simple as a title as, as, as Stevie Wonder ever kind of went for. Yeah, it's easy, it's memorable. Yeah, and I think as well... Uh, you know, just the fact that it's a double album uh, and then later on Stevie tacked on another four songs on an, uh, on an EP and added them to it. <laughs> just in, in case in case 17 songs wasn't enough, he added another four. Right. Um, and I will also be honest in that I have been on this podcast a few times now and this is the first of the songs that I actually have definitely heard before. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like this is the album that I think everybody knows. Uh, some of the, like some of the songs from the previous albums that were like number ones and stuff, I think people kind of know, but mm-hmm. some of the, for some of the album tracks are, are kind of more regarded as a kind of deep cuts, even though those albums were all winning Grammy of the Year. Yeah. Um, and this won Album of the Year Grammy as well. Mm-hmm. You know, looking back, it seems like the logical end point to like uh this kind of period of stevie's life yeah um you know he, he didn't release an album in 1975 he spent a lot of that year actually touring yeah oh, um, okay. and kind of you know in hotel rooms and stuff he came up with the ideas for the songs that would end up being on songs in the key mm-hmm. of life um but he still returned to new york for a few months and just kind of uh, you know did most of the songs um and then he also flew out to um la and uh okay. the record plant there and and hit and he kind of recorded some songs there as well um, so, you know, he, he, he basically kind of had the ideas while he was touring and then, yeah. you know, kind of found some space to just kind of record so many songs. Um, and, <laughs> uh, and, and the weirdest thing is, obviously, you know, for the previous few albums, he, he, they've been produced by the guys who had came up with the, um, uh, the Tonto synthesizer, uh, mm-hmm. which was a gigantic, like, 12-foot synthesizer that had, like, oh, five cabinets and <laughs> that was just basically, you know, the size of a room. And for this album, he Stevie kind of abandoned the Tonto um, and, you know, the inventors of the Tonto, which was, a, uh, I think, Robert Cecil and... Uh, no, not Robert Cecil. Malcolm Cecil and Robert Margolef. Mm-hmm. Um, they no longer produced this album. Like, they were producing the previous three albums, but they didn't produce anything on this album. Mm-hmm. Um, and Stevie had swapped instead for the Yamaha GX1, um, which had kind of first been available kind of in late 73. Um, and there weren't that many produced. Uh, in fact, by 77, Yamaha had stopped making them because they'd actually figured out a way to make a smaller keyboard mm-hmm. uh, because this keyboard is quite big. It has um, three keyboards um, and, you know, it has a kind of uh, a, a kind of pedal section um, and it's just basically gigantic. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the actual kind of main thing itself is 300 kilograms and then you have wow. a pedal board that's 87 kilograms. 
Um, and then, you know, once you've got everything together, you know, just the, the actual keyboard itself was like 600 pounds. Oh, my um, God. And was, and was nicknamed the roadie's nightmare. For good um, reason. But then, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but then once you when you have all the add-ons, it ends up being almost um, 2,000 pounds. Oh, God. <laughs> um, once you've got the whole thing put together. Uh, and at the time, it cost $60,000 to buy. Um, mm-hmm. And Stevie bought two of them. Um, wow. Uh, and in, t- in today's prices, it's roughly $320,000. I'm really glad that my job does not entail uh, <laughs> having to help carry equipment of this size that costs that amount of money. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I think the thing is, like, after this, you know, this was only produced for a few years. And, um, you know, th- the amount that were made was less than 100 mm-hmm. Um and, you know, this was replaced almost immediately by the CS80, which was like half the size and, and you know, a lot easier to kind of carry around. Um, you know, Stevie was one like, you know, he was he was known to be one of the few people who bought two of them, um, mm-hmm. you know, whereas most people just bought one. Um, you would expect. Uh, in, in, yeah, including um, Benny Anderson of ABBA. He purchased one. Mm-hmm. Uh, Keith Emerson of Emerson Leighton Palmer, he he produ- he bought one and then he sold it to Hans Zimmer, hmm. um, who obviously is known for doing the soundtracks to uh, Chris Nolan films. I think in more recent years, mm-hmm. um, and there were you know a few other kind of um, uh, groups that kind of uh, you know bought them, um, but yeah, generally like a solo artist like Stevie Wonder purchasing one for himself or even purchasing two uh, was kind of unheard of. Why did he need two? Uh, because he was recording in both uh, New York. And Los Angeles. Okay, so. so he had one at each house, basically. <laughs> yeah, so while he was in New York, as as he had, like, the problem with the Tonto was it was so big, it couldn't be moved. Mm-hmm. So when it was in New York, that was it. He had to record everything he wanted with that synthesizer in New York. Yeah. Um, and and so, like, the issue with that was just he only had one of those, and there was only one that was ever kind of really made, mm. and that was mm-hmm. it. Um, you know, he didn't even own it either. It was still owned by the people who kind of made it, mm-hmm. um, and and so with this, at least he could buy two and he could have them in separate locations. Um, and then when he was in California, you could just record with it. And when he was in New York, he could record with it. And, you know. But then they brought it on tour as well. Yes. Once he toured. Yeah. After this, they, they took one of them on tour. Um, and one of them is actually on display at the Las Vegas Madame Tussauds. Hmm. Um, so, <laughs> so oh. it found a, it found a home. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but the thing is, because after 1979, Stevie Wonder no longer used uh, the GX1. Mm-hmm. Um, he he got you know as as with everybody, things got smaller, and mm-hmm. you know throughout the 80s, you know miniaturization was obviously a big thing, and that's what Stevie Wonder kind of moved to smaller and smaller synthesizers as that decade went on. Um, but yeah, like kind of the the fact that these things were so expensive was kind of one of the things that kept them from you know, uh, smaller kind of bands or, you know, younger bands from using them yeah. is because you just couldn't because they were so expensive. Uh, once synthesizers got cheaper, then obviously we ended up with New Wave. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know it, it it helps once the instruments are affordable to, you know, for certain people to be able to buy them. And then obviously you can have a scene that builds up around that kind of particular sound. Right. Uh, whereas at the moment, Stevie Wonder is spending, you know, 
60 grand on well 120 grand on buying two synthesizers basically your, your little like indie band starting out is not buying that although obviously by the time you get to the mid 80s something that produces the same sound as the gx1 mm-hmm. is pretty much like you could buy it for a couple of hundred yeah um so you know but and i think as well like uh, it is something that will kind of change the sound of um you know from the, the previous few albums stevie was kind of very heavily reliant on the um, on the Polymoog mm-hmm. and on the ARP and um, the Clavinet. He uses the Clavinet on this track, but all you know, a lot of his previous stuff was basically all Clavinet or all Tonto. Yeah. Um, whereas here, he, he kind of moves more towards using the GX1, and the sound of it is noticeably different um, from the Tonto, which had mm-hmm. a kind of... Um, I mean, it was polyphonic, but it had a slightly different sound. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so this is the first track where he's using it. Um, and like, I, you know... It, on previous albums, when Stevie's had like co-writers, his writing gets a bit complex. But here, he's starting with something that's kind of very simple. Um, and I like that he opens this album by saying, you know, good morning or evening, friends. Here is your friendly yeah. answer. And just kind of welcomes you into the album. Um, and then he says, <laughs> I have serious news to pass on to everybody. <laughs> I like how he kind of, I don't know, he kind of fakes you out by saying... Um, you know, what I'm about to say could mean the world's disaster, could change your joy and laughter. I was on the edge of my pain. seat. Yeah, <laughs> and then he says, it's that love's in need of love today. And I, you know, straight away you're like, oh yeah, this is Stevie Wonder. Uh-huh. Nice and kind of upbeat and positive and simple and just kind of saying, you know, don't delay, send yours right away. Um, you know, hate's going round, breaking many hearts. Stop it, please, mm-hmm. before it goes, t- before it's gone too far. And again, that's like this is the, this is, I guess, what people would kind of think of as being stereotypical Stevie Wonder, yeah. which is, you know, positive, kind of like you know, um, just saying to people, be happy, you know, um, stop hating, stop being sad, <laughs> and just kind of, yeah, you know. And it was, it's also very much a song that feels, in some ways, like a message song, especially in some ways with that kind of intro announcer element. But there's nothing about it that makes it very obvious what specifically, if anything, he is referring to. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, he even says, like in the second verse, he says, you know, uh, the force of evil plans, and you're like, okay, what, what are these evil plans? Yeah, what's what's happening? <laughs> yeah, and then he immediately moves on to, you know, like, uh, you know, it will destroy everyone. But then he's like, we must take precautionary mer- measures. If you love peace, you treasure. And then, of course, he's back to, you know, loves in love of need to today. You know, don't delay. And it's like, okay, okay Stevie. I, like, I, it feels like he's trying to tell me something's going to happen bad, but he just never quite gets around to it. Instead, he just, you know, kind of repeats quite a lot in the song, you know, that love is in need of love today. And you're like, uh, okay. Yeah. You know, like, well, and um, then, you know. interestingly, the YouTube comments are overwhelmingly, in the version that I was looking at at least, are overwhelmingly comments about... Donald Trump as being in uh, <laughs> in need of hearing this song today. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, it's interesting actually because like you know, uh, Stevie wrote a number of songs about Richard Nixon. Uh-huh. Um, you know, one of which came out two days before his resignation. Oh, so yeah. we can only assume that uh, Stevie Wonder was uh, responsible for Richard Nixon finally resigning. <laughs> um, and people have always said, well, if you listen to any of Stevie Wonder's Nixon songs, they pretty much apply to donald trump yeah like uh you know you haven't done nothing and mr know-it-all you know like mm-hmm. they're you know they kind of i mean you know even the song evil i would say probably mm-hmm. you know applies to donald trump and yeah so i it does feel a little bit like um the kind of the message that's being said certainly in the early verses where he's like you know 
you know, evil plan, the force of evil plans, you know, like will destroy everything, um, you know, could mean Will's disaster. Yeah, yeah I, hate hates going around. <laughs> yeah, hates going around, I think certainly could be the campaign slogan for Donald Trump 2020, um, <laughs> you know, because, yeah, it's, I, I don't know, it's, it's kind of what, it's, yeah, it, it does feel like there is kind of a political message. It's funny because obviously this came out a couple of years after Richard Nixon had already resigned, so. Right, um, so. You know, Gerald Ford is Gerald Ford president still. He was just about yeah. yes, um, yeah. So by by the by the time I think you know by the I mean this this came out uh, uh, you know uh, like towards the end of seventy six. So it would have been uh, a few like a, a, about a month or a couple of weeks before election day mm-hmm. in seventy six, and then you know um, Jimmy Carter was elected. But obviously this was written over the course of a couple of years. So yeah, I mean, I get, maybe he's talking about Gerald Ford. Maybe Gerald Ford is the, the hate that's going around. <laughs> um, I don't, I don't know that Gerald Ford has ever made that much of an impression on anybody. No, I'm not sure uh, Gerald Ford has inspired to, uh, that much, uh, uh, passion, I guess, either way. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah. So, so it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting that, you know, like the, the people are kind of reading that into it. Uh, towards the end, of course, he starts spelling out L-O-V-E. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there's a kind of the repetition of, you know, hates going around, breaking hard, stop it, please. Like, there's just this kind of gradual buildup. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a seven-minute song, so obviously Stevie, you know, does some kind of improvising and playing around later on in the song. Yeah. Um, and, to, you know, the kind of the final line that he sings is just give the world love. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, which, I mean, considering obviously that he ended up co-writing We Are the World. Yeah, uh, you know, it can, no, <laughs> maybe this feels but... like a prototype. Yeah, it feels like a prototype for that, uh, mm-hmm. essentially. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I just I think like this album is so kind of like iconic yeah. and like, you know, uh, I think the, the kind of the biggest discussion point you can have about um, this album is not, you know, are the songs good, which obviously I think everyone will understand, you know, five out of five, yeah. um, you know. Uh, it's more like which of the four sides is the best side mm-hmm. uh, in terms of the run of songs. And I, I mean, I think side two is probably the best um, in time ty- in terms of like just the, the kind of the, the songs that are on there. But I would say side one, you know, which finishes with Sir Duke, um, mm-hmm. you know, like have a talk with God. You know, you're talking about like a, a, a kind of strong run of songs on this first side as well. Yeah. Um, but you know, I mean, it like it feels almost like kind of uh, it's hard to kind of say anything about this album because like everything about it is so kind of well known and uh, almost undisputed as like you know how good it is. Yeah. Um, you know, it kind of it debuted at number one, and you know at that point it was only the third album ever to have debuted at number uh-huh. one. <laughs> And it was the first time that an American artist had debuted at number one in the Billboard, oh. you know, album charts. Hmm. Yeah, uh, the previous, the previous two, pe- the previous person who'd done it was Elton John twice. Oh, okay. Um, so, <laughs> so um, you know, and it was like the, you know, it, it entered number one in Canada, and it was like the first album to do that. And you know, it's, I mean, it just sold so many copies, yeah. and you know, became so big. Um, even in like 1977, it would have been the best-selling album of the following year, were it not for the fact that Fleetwood Mac released Rumours, um, mm-hmm. which you know also sold 10 million units, yeah. as well as this. You know, this also sold 10 million. Um, you know, so I don't know. It's just such a kind of a great um, album, and I think this is like a really strong start. You know, like yeah. um, kind of showing what Stevie, kind of almost showing what Stevie's going to do for the next kind of like 20-something songs. Um, you know, obviously at this point, 
I feel like, he, you know, and something that, you know, I haven't really kind of talked about, but his voice had kind of matured so much by this point. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, in both senses, not just the actual quality of his voice, but like he was so kind of composed and kind of know, knew what he wanted to sing. So, yeah. you know, his kind of choice of melody and, and kind of harmonies and everything was so perfect. Um, it's kind of, I, you can kind of understand why people feel like this is, you know, a record that's probably unmatched. Um, since its release I don't know yeah. I'm trying to think of other albums that are probably as good as this album uh, and I would say you know there's a couple of Prince albums that probably mm-hmm. match this you know it's it's kind of it's just one of those kind of uh, iconic albums yeah um, and, and you know even you know 40 years down the line um, you know everything I mean uh, it finishes with a song that is extremely disco uh, uh-huh. eight and a half minutes of disco um, but other than that I think a lot of it is kind of timeless yeah and I and I think that's kind of the strength of, of Stevie Wonder's kind of songwriting skill is yeah when he does when he does kind of write stuff that's a bit more like feels I guess you could say a bit more generic mm-hmm. um, but it just then lends it that timeless quality and even though you know there is a lot of synths on here and stuff um, you know, the 80s, 80s synth sound has kind of made a comeback in the last few years yeah. anyway. <laughs> so I, I feel like you could play some of these songs to kind of, you know, teenagers today and they probably wouldn't realize that they were 40 years old. Yeah. And even from a political perspective, and I think that is really interesting that, you know, I think a lot of obvious kind of message songs really don't age well because people are not getting exactly what they're, they're kind of making specific references that people then aren't getting. So I think it's really interesting that people are talking about this as a politically relevant song on YouTube. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Um, But I I don't know. I just really, I think this is a really strong opening and you know, from this point on uh, you know, what all we're doing then is just talking about classic song after classic song. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, so Duke, I wish Pastime Paradise as, you know, Summersoft, uh, Joy Inside My Tears. Like this is just, they're just literally, you know, of course, isn't she lovely? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just kind of nonstop classic songs. Yeah. Um, and, and just an artist who is kind of at the very peak of his powers. Like, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting because over the course of these albums, you've basically heard Stevie Wonder, you know, not just kind of find his feet as an artist, but also as a person like with each album he gets you know gradually more mature his voice matures mm-hmm. his ideas mature and then you reach this point where you know he's obviously saying to Motown look I've got 17 songs I'm going to be sticking them on a double album uh-huh. <laughs> so they're like you know like okay Stevie I guess we've got to do it you know we've got no choice on this matter but it's still you know like it was such a kind of bold you know thing for like a 25 year old to be like oh I know what I'm going to do I'm going to yeah. record a double album <laughs> stick it, like <laughs> okay you know Different. Yeah, there's there's very there's very few artists who kind of are this secure and yeah. kind of know like their craft so well to be able to just put out an album this good. Yeah. Um, yeah. And obviously, I look forward to speaking about it from now until the end of the year, uh, <laughs> which is when this project will finish. Uh, is there anything else you need to say about this? Uh, you know, this song or indeed this album? Uh, I was just going to add that the uh, the opening to this really almost then sounds like a hymn. And then it then moves into this interesting uh, kind of news announcer. And that I think that uh, kind of blend between something that's a little more almost religious or sermon-like sounding and then something that is more kind of overtly secular is a really interesting frame for this song. And it's 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 funny because obviously, you know, Stevie Wonder, I mean, the next song's called Have a Talk With God. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> Stevie Wonder, you know, like he he obviously, um, you know, has a certain level of religiosity, Mm -hmm. Uh, maybe not as much as, I don't know, Prince had at a certain point. Uh, I am not a religious person at all in the slightest, Um, but I do kind of admire like, you know, I mean, one of my favorite Stevie songs is Heaven is Ten Zillion Mm -hmm. Light Years Away. 
which is interesting because it combines the words heaven with light years. Right. So <laughs> it's this kind of so it's, it's kind of this often. weird. Yeah, it's this weird mix of Stevie Wonder being going like, I have a location for where heaven is. Unfortunately, it's ten zillion light years away. Yeah. Um, and you know that finishes with basically like a full on gospel chant, and yet you know it's it's I find it's you know such a moving song. Um, but I, I, you know, I always feel like it's the performance that is moving. And like you say, this kind of combination here of like starting out with something that's almost sounds like he's going to be preaching at us, but then just kind of turning it into a, something kind of like, like I say, and there's a message here, uh, but it's, you know, um, not fully clear exactly what the message is. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, it's, it kind of remains a relatively timeless thing just because he hasn't got too specific on it. Yeah. Um, but then again, you know, the, the fact that it has love in the title twice, uh, I think, you know, tells us all you need to know about Stevie Wonder. And, Absolutely. You know, that's kind of, you know, I, if he's not opening his albums with the word love, he's opening them with a round. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, and sometimes he's opening with both of those words. So, um, but yeah, so uh, I feel like we said about as much as we can about uh, mm -hmm. how much love we need today. So <laughs> let's go to plugs. Is there anything that you wish to plug, Sarah? Yes, I have a podcast called Media Evil, where I, as a medieval historian, talk about medieval movies, TV and books and how they depict the medieval world and most usually why they are wrong. And you can find us for this project on Twitter at Stevie Wonder. Uh, thanks as well for being my guest here today, uh, Sarah. Thanks so much for having me. And otherwise, goodbye. Bye.